This week joining us on the rocks, we have my good friend Alex Mastranko, the head of U.S. operations of Kazatomprom. Alex has over 17 years of experience in nuclear energy market analysis, non-standard material processing, intergovernmental projects, and he has a thorough knowledge of mining and processing in Central Asia, Ukraine, Central Europe, and North America. On this podcast, Alex and I talk about all things uranium. We cover Uranium 101, we debunk some uranium myths, you'll be shocked to know he does not glow in the dark, and we also cover mining in Central Asia and how that connects with green energy, national security, and more. Grab a glass of Talisker Distillers Edition or Blanton's and let's jump in. All right, well, Alex, thank you so much for coming here on the rocks today. Cheers to having drinks with friends. Cheers, Emily. Working hours. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> so, what are you? Thanks for having me. What are you drinking today? The libation of choice is a, a rare Talisker Distillers Edition from the Isle of Skye. I know you're a bourbon girl, but uh, for a Scotch drinker myself, it doesn't get any better if you're into peaty variety of uh, scotches. The Distillers Edition is just perfectly matured, and uh, it is it is peaty and smooth at the same time. I always love a love a cocktail that tastes like dirt. Well, that's the way to a geologist's heart. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> well, I, what, what is your libation of choice, pray tell? I'm not nearly as creative, but uh, a good friend of mine, Pippa, if she's listening, sent me a bottle of Blanton's this week as a belated birthday gift. So I am drinking oh, Blanton's, which is great. Mm. And I just think, you know, I mean, talk about a whiskey that's gone from kind of something you could get at like every liquor store a few years ago, right? I mean, Blanton's was kind of a standard to now it's like a big deal to even just find a bottle. So grateful for her for sending that present. And they do have the cutest little horse stopper things, right? Which is an important thing. That's a very pretty bottle. Yeah. Selection. Yeah. I hope it tastes as, as good as it looks. It does. It does. It's always a, always a great bottle. Well, so I'm excited to have you on here because you've got a really unique background in the kind of mining industry. And so tell us just a little bit about how you ended up here. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Uh, thanks. What have you done with your life to, uh, to end up in this situation? Where do I start? 17 years in the industry. And uh, I started by assisting in construction of uranium mines mm -hmm. and largely helping out one of the top producers in the world, Chemical Corporation, to expand their operations into Central Asian region in the time when they were establishing their joint venture operations with uh, the largest producer in the world, National Atomic Company, Kazatomprom. Mm -hmm. So I, I helped them with their footing and establishing of uh, local infrastructure for what later became one of the better operating uh, uranium extraction facilities in Central Asia. And uh, over time, gradually moved through the management levels, uh, having worked for Kazaramprom themselves and uh, a number of trading companies that um, traditionally strongly represented businesses in Central Asia, connecting them to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, after certain uh, positive developments in my personal life, uh, I, uh, my wife and I moved to Virginia, where I did uh, industry consulting for a number of years until on my second run with uh, Kazaromprom, I landed uh, the current position that I'm occupying, that is uh, a director of U.S. operations for um, the largest producer uh, of natural uranium concentrates. 
So I love this also because I'm a huge Central Asia fan, which sounds mm-hmm. like that's probably a weird thing to be a fan of. But I feel like when we think about the mining industry, most people think Canada, Australia, the US, maybe parts of Africa, but folks aren't aware of what a huge presence Central Asia has in certain parts of the industry and certainly a growing presence. I mean, Central Asia is hugely important to where the industry is going here in the future. You're absolutely right. I think Central Asia holds the key to unlocking many challenging situations arising uh, before Western producers Mm -hmm. these days. It is a very vast region with absolutely extraordinary list of uh, geological richness Mm -hmm. and mineral resources to offer to the global community. It's also a region with a very uh, capable and uh, very robust infrastructure and professional uh, backgrounds. We prefer, sadly, in my opinion, to think of the region as the former vestige of the Soviet Union. Mm But the truth is that uh, these are self-sufficient, self-governing nations with their own vision and their own opinions about where they want to see themselves in the geopolitics of the 21st century. And um, that is the uh, one of the most untapped resources politically and geologically, in my opinion, that is uh, existing out there. Yeah, I mean, from certainly those who listen to this podcast have heard me talk a lot about my Afghanistan experience, but a country no. I've been, I was really impressed with was Uzbekistan. I haven't yet been to Kazakhstan, but um, they're all so unique. The geology is hugely untapped, essentially. I mean, there are a few big companies there for sure, but the structures you're talking about and the potential mines that can be built in that region are just massive compared to a lot of other parts of the world that are have been really explored. And it's really interesting geology with folks that are knowledgeable about the mining industry and still supportive of the mining industry, right? Like they they want mining companies to come in and, and build mines and produce. You're right. I, I think I would put uh, Central Asia in the same category with uh, certain African regions mm-hmm. in that the potential for mining is is there. Yeah. And the mine base has been uh, pretty widely explored by the previous generations. The nations have not taken active steps towards actively commercially developing these these mm-hmm. uh, these resources. So over time, what they need is expertise and international financing. Mm-hmm. And that opens them up to the most competitive tiered extraction methods available to the industry, yeah. where there's a difference between the existing mine that has seasoned operators that uh, like to stick to their tried and true technology. And yet there are daring individuals out there and, 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 and companies that are willing to take on the opportunities to adopt the top leading technology of the time. Yeah. And I think that puts Central Asia exactly at the top and center of this new upcoming revolution of, of new emerging mining opportunities. Alex, give me a little bit of an overview of the uranium market and how it works, because I think most folks don't really understand how it might be different from other commodities. And certainly, I don't think most people understand that there's a difference between uranium, the mineral, and uranium as it's converted into nuclear fuel. I think folks think like you pull it out of the ground and then it gets made into bombs. And that's really, (laughs) I would assume that's not actually how it works. Counter to uh, prevailing industry's opinion, I do not glow in the dark. (laughs) And uh, despite the fact that I lost most of my hair, that is largely due to genetics and not uh, professionally related factors. But you're right. Uh, I think perhaps uranium is the most misunderstood and um, 
underrepresented in terms of, uh, you know, publicly covered commodity uh, element out there. And there's reason for that, because for a number of decades, this has been exclusively a government-centered element that uh, played a pivotal role in uh, defense, mm -hmm. in uh, a, a country's uh, energy policies, but also uh, you know policies that spilled over into the, uh, the military uh, use. Mm -hmm. So um, with respect to educating the public about the properties of uranium as a, as a chemical element, mm -hmm. its use in the civil and non-military applications for the nuclear energy community, and stages that material, as you rightly point out, has to go through from being just a, a chemical element extracted from the ground to when it becomes a nuclear fuel are, are multiple. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think we as an industry, sadly, are, are talking enough about these exciting and uh, invigorating stages. We can talk about the possible gaps and uh, wish lists of uh, a lot of folks in the industry that uh, wish that uh, we would employ communication with the public in a little bit more robust and engaging way. But uh, suffice it to say that we're not doing enough right now. Sadly. So, for example, like uranium is coming out of Kazakhstan. Does most of it go to energy? I would assume the amount that goes to energy is a much larger percentage or other industrial purposes than anything that's national security related. That's correct. Natural uranium concentrates broadly are marketed for civilian use and civilian non-military application. Mm -hmm. uh, there are certain programs uh, on the uh, Department of Defense side that, uh, that cater to uh, the needs of uh, certain governments, but uh, you will find that material that is produced is typically funneled through commercial means and finds its way to uh, utilities, that is, end users of natural uranium in the form of nuclear fuel through series of intermediaries. There's a lot of things that the material needs to undergo in order to be to find itself in the, inside the nuclear reactor. But uh, obviously, the material that is mined and marketed from uh, Kazakhstan, like in, uh, in, in any other cases, is uh, committed to the end users, mm. uh, particularly within the countries that have uh, very robust nuclear policies, such as the United States. We have the largest nuclear fleet uh, on the planet, uh, China, Japan, up to a certain point before Fukushima uh, sad events had occurred, Western Europe, mm. and uh, bits of uh, South America. And when you say nuclear fleet, you mean nuclear power plants? Nuclear power plants, nuclear, correct. Yeah. So I think folks, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about should nuclear energy be considered a green energy solution? Do you have an opinion on that? I think the documents speak louder than words, and the current bill that is uh, hopefully uh, successfully passing through uh, through the Congress right now is uh, a living proof of the government taking a very hard and detailed look into reassessing the role of nuclear in the clean energy bills mm -hmm. and initiatives. I don't know to what extent uh, you're familiar with the contents of the of the of the current uh, initiative that is basically tailored to lower the inflationary uh, results of pretty turbulent couple of years yeah. that we've had. But nuclear is a very important part of that initiative, and um, along with solar and wind, it occupies a very confident place in the in the zero emission green energy sector. So do, are there um, 
in other areas like Europe or, or other parts of the world, are they looking to build more nuclear power plants? Or is it something that's kind of on the upper trajectory? Or is there still a huge amount of resistance to it? Very oddly, uh, what you find is certain nations voting along the party line in terms of uh, institutional or historical preferences of uh, certain politicians. Yeah, You find very robust initiatives on part of some European countries, such as the United Kingdom. Uh, Belgium is uh, making the right sounds towards mm -hmm. revitalizing and actually rebuilding their nuclear fleet. And a number of other uh, countries in Europe, emerging countries that would like to get into nuclear game, you know, Poland and uh, Central mm -hmm. European nations. But at the same time, you see folks like Germany who um, are finding themselves in a rut, don't they? Yeah. With uh, uh, once overperforming infrastructure that allowed them to be one of the champions of nuclear energy in the entire uh, European uh, Union uh, sphere and uh, largely walking back every single project in that realm and phasing out uh, existing nuclear power plants throughout the nation right now. So it's a mixed bag of opinions, but I think the overall tone that we see in Europe is that of a pro-nuclear vision, mm -hmm. even uh, to the extent that European Union uh, classifying it just like we do and putting it in the category of green energy uh, sources and uh, coming up with series of solutions and regulatory incentives that would allow nuclear to prosper and uh, see as few barriers as possible on the path towards it. So what do you see in terms of the impact that those decisions or preferences have on the mining side of the house? Because if, if those clearly the, the utilities are the customers and if the demand is fluctuating greatly based off of politics, essentially, what do you see happening in terms of the actual exploration and mining companies that focus on uranium? I think mining is is tricky. It's 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 simple and tricky at the same time. And let me explain why. It's simple in that we largely know where some of the most better performing uh, uranium mines are located. Mm -hmm. We know them through uh, by geography. We know them by company performing those uh, geological explorations and extractions. Uh, and we know the historical distribution of committed material throughout the world and where those pounds end up and in, in, in which nuclear power plants. But at the same time, there's a will that is demonstrated by certain nations wanting to look into uranium mining operations once again, maybe reassessing their ability to uh, extract at this point in, uh, in our geological state of engineering and where the price is particularly for, for the material. So uh, it is uh, very encouraging and even largest producers admit to it, that uh, new mining companies and new nations that uh, have an inventory or a resource base that allows them to look into mining potential down the road are trying to get into the game. Now, mm -hmm. it's, it's a very long and difficult road in assessing the risks and getting the investors involved and waiting for the right price combination that allows for more risky and... Uh, industry intense projects to come online. Yeah. But uh, the desire is there. And because we think that there is the lifting old boats effect that is uh, targeting everybody within the industry and with the growing demand that is uh, going to be hitting the industry in the next, some anticipate, 10 to 15 years, there will be room for everybody to perform. Mm. 
I find that to be a, a great opportunity for folks to think about because even if, if you're a fan of green energy and this new wave, I think most folks would be surprised to know, for example, that, that the company you work with and for is publicly traded. Correct. Right. Like I, I think folks here, you know, uranium company, Central Asia, and, and not to say it's just, just your company, but I think they expect them to all be state owned and government controlled. And there's no way to kind of participate in mm-hmm. potential upside of what of what this may look like for the uranium industry. Do you want to combat any of those preconceived notions? No, you're right, Emily. And I think that stems from what we talked about a bit earlier, that uh, largely the institutional memory of that region seems to prevail that, hey, this this is the former you know backyard of the Soviet empire. And uh, by definition, then, they would like to extrapolate that old mentality onto how they operate their, their companies. Not so for Kazakhstan, and uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, I will remind our viewers that Kazakhstan was the first post-Soviet nation that uh, voluntarily walked away from the nuclear weapons arsenal mm. in early 90s, thus demonstrating to the global nuclear community that uh, they, they would like to stick to the trajectory of peaceful use of nuclear uh, atom and largely phase out and uh, walk away from the militarization of of the subject. And uh, Kazaromprom as a company now just celebrated 25 years of operations, which is a remarkable achievement and a testimony to over 20,000 individuals working uh, tirelessly to achieve new heights and uh, commit themselves to absolutely unique and humbling mining operations in uh, in the middle of Central Asia. Mm-hmm. But Kazaromprom from, from the beginning had a completely different view in that they realized the potential that the resource base that they had contained in itself. And, mm-hmm. and instead of going it alone and sticking to that old Soviet-inspired methodology of nationalizing the company. Yeah, like totally it, vertically it, integrated, you do everything. Yeah. Correct. The business went the other way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in uh, conjunction with uh, a number of agencies within the government of Kazakhstan, they opened up to uh, competitive bidding and uh, mm-hmm. they opened their doors to uh, every top producer in the world. Mm-hmm. I remind you that Kazakhstan, uh, under the leadership of Kazakhstan, is home to... Uh, some of the most remarkable joint uh, mining operations in the industry. They mine uranium jointly with Cameco, the, mm-hmm. the top uh, Canadian producer of uranium, with with the Japanese, a series of Japanese companies that brought uh, each their absolutely individual and tailored approach to how they extract the material, how they process it, how they market it, how they package it, and so forth. France, Orono, mm-hmm. one of the top performers in the industry historically, um, is has a very successful operation in Kazakhstan. You know, the Chinese producers, uh, even Russia, mm-hmm. they all found home in the country and they found common ground with Kazaromprom as a national operator to exchange their experiences and offer something that uh, was uniquely theirs to the yeah. industry. So the end result was basically six different approaches of how to mine the material, how to process it, how to how to store it, how to manage the day-to-day routine of a mining operation. And that gave the national operator, Kazaromprom, a just absolutely unique yeah. angle and experience in how similar things are done and approached globally. 
Yeah. Um, so so that that is truly a tribute to the visionary approach to um, conducting business and keeping it open mm. uh, and transparent with the rest of the world. And um, you, you are correct in stating that Kazarum Prom uh, has been publicly traded since 2018. Mm -hmm. The company is uh, uh, is trading on London Stock Exchange, and there are plans to go beyond that in the near future. So yes, that is another testimony to uh, keeping things transparent and uh, inspiring for uh, everybody else to follow. I certainly know that when I was really actively working in the region, I mean, Kazakhstan was who we pointed to, right? Like if you if you run an open process according to kind of best practices, this is what your mining industry can look like, right? I mean, it really is the gold standard in the region for attracting foreign direct investment and really good partners. And I would say from from my exposure to it, because of all of those different groups that have been successful in Kazakhstan, it's led to a very unique Kazakh way <laughs> of doing business, right? Because they've kind of been able to blend what's worked well for Kazakhstan from those different models to come up with something that really works uniquely for the people and the government. That's absolutely right. And I think what further solidifies that unique Kazakh experience is the terms, is the length of cooperation. Companies, mm -hmm. in other words, don't just simply come in, share their business and um, cut ties with uh, with the with the indigenous company. No, they they're here yeah. to stay, and they continue to operate for decades. Emily, and uh, you know the fact that Kazakhstan as a nation entered into this race very early on in the nineties gave them that competitive mm -hmm. lead that uh, permeates to this day. And, and you're you're right; it's it's home to so many operators, not just in the uranium field, but oil and gas and. Uh, Lithium, you know, uh, you name it. Uh, just uh, rare earth metals uh, scene alone is 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 pretty diverse and uh, extraordinary. Yeah, no, and I I think it's it's just so cool because I know a lot of people, especially Americans, not to knock on us, uh, fellow American listeners, but we're not typically great with geography, right? And uh, folks kind of lump all the stands together, right? Yep. And you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Kazakhstan is very different unique from the other countries in the region. And I, I do, I think it's really impressive what's been done really of their own, you know, again, their own initiative early on uh, set this path out. So I think it's really cool. And I love to have folks like you share your experiences from working in these other regions, because again, things are done really well in places other than just the US, Canada, or, or in Australia. And we can learn a lot from that, right? As we look at companies expanding into emerging and frontier markets, like what's worked well in Kazakhstan that can be applied to countries that are maybe only now starting to see foreign direct investment in the mining space, right? I think there's some great lessons learned there. It's not turning everything into Toronto, right? Sometimes there's a better model. Not that I no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. No, not that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you are correct. And I, I think one, one other thing that uh, folks uh, out there fail to realize is how strongly positioned uh, Kazakhstan is within the political spectrum of, of the region, mm -hmm. in that uh, they were able to uh, pivot on so many challenging situations this year alone, Emily, to mm -hmm. consider alternative uh, delivery routes for commitment yeah. that they have with global customer base to deliver their uh, the resources to the doorstep of uh, every customer in Europe, uh, North America, and beyond. So yeah. uh, they're incredibly well positioned in terms of uh, their traditional angled politics that is 
equal to all, uh, but they mm -hmm. also have these companies that, uh, despite being national operators, are publicly trade and have these resources to communicate equally well with the government sector as well as with the private sector and find that that unique position to negotiate and uh, carve out the opportunities to keep the goods flowing, if you will, during the hardest of circumstances. Yeah, no, that's really important. I mean, you must see lots of lessons learned that could be applied uh, maybe here in the U.S. and North America during the crazy supply chain stuff we've had going on. Which Is there something you, you think we could learn from them in that sense? I think it's teamwork. It's uh, We've been traditionally strong as an industry to do that. You know, folks historically concentrated on the commonalities uh, that we have within our businesses rather than on differences. Yeah. Uh, you know, that you see that permeate throughout the dialogue all the time. And, and because everybody essentially has a stake in the game in Kazakhstan, it, 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 it's, it ceases being just the Kazakhstan problem. Mm -hmm. It's a solution towards which everybody's working I each in their own way. Kazakhstan have, happens to be uh, sort of the, uh, the tip of the spear, if you will, in having these negotiations to diversify their delivery commitments and routes by which those commitments are fulfilled. But uh, every single partner within the uranium sector and beyond uh, is contributing as well because uh, it, it takes takes a global effort to talk to your governments to yeah. make sure that you know those materials and, and and those geographies are properly explained because there's there's a lot of risk mitigation that needs to be factored in and a lot of folks that are like you rightly uh, pointed out earlier are not necessarily familiar with the geographical uh, peculiarities of the region mm -hmm. right and uh, it's hard to force folks to distinguish certain countries and 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 their internal objectives and their motivating factors and uh there's a lot of conversation and back and forth that needs to happen to uh, open certain eyes and ears to uh to make it a truly global effort i'm very encouraged by a lot of uh, positive steps that are being made by the current administration in that mm -hmm. regard um i i think we're doing we're performing a lot of proper sending a lot of proper signals to the industry to other governments, mm. but uh, we can do more yeah. and we should be doing more. Hey, one one step in front of the other. So it's a good place to start though. So that's, that's Correct. We could hear. Well, uh, and on that note, we've had a few worldview uh, points here. So I, I like to ask all my guests as the last question, you know, if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing about the mining industry, what would you change overnight? Uh, the magic wand. <laughs> Consider consider me having waved one. Yeah. Um, one thing is nuclear industry is not boring. Mm, uh, yeah. That that is the message that I will continue to carry uh, with me to my well deserved retirement. Mm -hmm. Paraphrasing one of my uh, dearest colleagues in the industry, I would rather be criticized and bullied by my peers within the industry than by the naysayers on the anti nuclear side. Mm. And th there's a reason for that, Emily, because um, we're unique in the sense that we choose this profession for the majority of our lives. Mm -hmm. And there, there are very few folks that uh, come in, do their time, and then move on to other projects. We, we right. usually like to stick around, and uh, you may find us uh, in the next mining season uh, representing a different business, but it would be a business mm -hmm very tightly related to the industry at large. So we're not boring because this is our boiling pot. We have just an extraordinary combination of thoughtful, resilient, 
talented, inspired, tireless, optimistic, and charismatic folks uh, within the industry. And uh, that is an untapped resource that we need to invigorate because yeah. uh, conversation about the safety, reliability, responsibility, and dependability of the nuclear mm -hmm. industry needs to be projected and communicated. And that needs to be done in a very engaging, casual, charismatic, and fun way. We're in dire search of a, of a spokesperson who would do all that and then some. And I think that would be the ultimate tribute to uh, the great work that the folks within the industry are doing day in and day out. Maybe you need a podcast. <laughs> I'm going to kick it off. There you go. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's so true. I mean, I, I, I certainly can appreciate it's true about about the uranium space or the nuclear energy space, but I think it can also be applied to the industry as a whole. Right? I always say we have really fun people that work in mining and we have crazy stories. We didn't get into a lot of them, but you and I have shared some of ours over a drink, uh, you know, at mining conferences <laughs> here and there. I mean, you, you have wonderful adventures and you have folks that are so, so passionate about what we do because it is really interesting. We all kind of geek out um, about our own little slice. So I, I can certainly appreciate that. And, and on the nuclear energy side, I mean, gosh, the fact that folks don't even realize how important it is to our economy, right? I mean, it's it's something that doesn't get talked about enough. I absolutely agree. So again, I think I think you need to start your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> get the word out there a little bit more. Here's hoping. So cheers to that. Thanks again for coming, Alex. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.